it. You don't wanna miss it. I was born to get it. This sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. I'm bothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel show improving. Trophy. Don't make me tell you 50-11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it. You don't want to miss it. I was born to get it. If you've ever wondered what it might feel like if the world officially stopped, then you got a little taste of that last week when Facebook, Instagram, and WhatsApp went down for several hours. And that's where I'm starting today with the word of the week being outage. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Huh? Yeah. The timing of this outage was absolutely impeccable because it came a day after 60 Minutes did an in-depth interview with Facebook whistleblower Frances Falgan, who also testified before Congress this week as she continued her campaign of putting her former employer all the way on blast. Areas of civic disinformation that you were working on included what? In most of the world, because there isn't third-party fact-checking, because the basic integrity and safety systems are not supported in almost all the languages in the world. You know, there's 5,000 languages in the world. Facebook supports maybe 50. In other parts of the world, that misinformation is directly leading to people dying, right? You'll have incidences where in a village in Africa, someone will send in a picture of a massacre that is allegedly happening in the next village and say, grab your guns, come save your cousins. So what do you think happens when a bunch of people with guns shows up in the next village, right? It's, it's really, really scary. And it, it, it's a force that, that I, I, I worry will destabilize societies. If you haven't seen the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, I strongly urge you to watch it. It makes you want to delete Facebook and every app associated with them because they are truly an evil corporation. I know the counter to that is that every social media platform has issues and is at least a little bit evil. But let's not lose sight of the fact that there's levels to this. And Facebook is at a different level of evil than practically everyone else. The January 6th riots, the intense political divide, the widespread misinformation about the pandemic all leads back to Facebook, which makes billions of dollars off inciting extremism and ignorance. As was noted by the whistleblower, and when you watch that documentary, Facebook has developed specific algorithms that feed hatred and continually peddle and uphold the worst elements of our humanity. Now, that might not have been the company's original intention, but it's a byproduct that they have shown they are willing to live with as it rakes in billions of dollars. For those six hours that Facebook was offline, it was kind of glorious because this company that has been at the root of so much bullshit was given a dose of come Lex Luthor, oops, I'm sorry, I mean Mark Zuckerberg, lost $8 billion in those hours that Facebook was offline. And while for the rest of us, that's like losing $20 in our couch cushions, there was something deliciously heartwarming about seeing his Frankenstein in gridlock for a few hours. Now, I won't hold you up. I missed Instagram and WhatsApp, but I took the disruption as a sign, as a final straw. Which is why I think I'm ready to finally announce something. I'm going to do what I should have done years ago. 
I'm leaving Facebook by the end of 2021. It's time. It's actually been time. The engagement is toxic. I can't take the constant flow of terrible data and bad information. And while I love some of my high school friends and being able to connect with them many years down the road, I don't love them that much to stay on Facebook. There are 3.5 billion people worldwide on Facebook. Facebook doesn't need me, but most importantly, I don't need them. And as soon as I get the pictures I need downloaded from Facebook, I'm out. Outage. The word of the week, which gave me the kick in the ass I needed to leave that awful app alone. Just give me a second to speak. It's the word of the week. Now on to today's show. My guest today is a woman that truly says what she means and means what she says. She is what I would describe as if they don't play or a person. But on top of that, she is a wonderful actress who has over 142 acting credits. She has been in some of everything, sitcoms, big budget Marvel movies, sketch comedy shows, animated television shows, you name it promise you she's done it. Her versatility is amazing, but equally amazing is that she stands in the pocket for what she believes in. Not some of the time, but all the time. Coming up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered, Yvette Nicole Brown. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yvette, are you familiar with the Kevin Bacon game? I am. <laughs> I am. You are. I feel like, and uh, just in preparation for this interview, I wanted to make sure that I had the full breadth of your numerous acting credits. I feel like you need to be elected the new replacement for the Kevin Bacon game. Like, instead of calling it the Kevin Bacon game, we need to call it the Yvette Nicole Brown game. <laughs> Thank you for that, sis. Um, that comes from me having very tiny roles in a lot of things. I'm, I'm like the female Sam Jackson. I believe in yes. saying oh my yes. Gosh. Oh, I'll say yes to anything as long as I don't go against my morals. You're right. And they pay me. So I, I say yes to everything and I pop up everywhere. So thank you for that. Yeah, because I, I was just looking at it because some of the things I had just I kind of forgot about a little bit. And then um, I remember talking to my husband the other night and he was like, oh, so you got coming up on the podcast. I was like, I'm so excited. I'm interviewing Yvette Nicole Brown. I was, I was like, yeah, because I, I, I was like, I'm, I intend to ask her so much about her experience um, on were you in you were in Endgame, correct? You're in Endgame. And so I was like, she was in Endgame. He was like, she was in Endgame. I was like, yes, the black woman on the elevator <laughs> who made sure that she she basically got Tony Stark's caught up because she was like, mm -mm, he don't belong here. Let me go find out what's up. And I was like, just like a black woman, we we nosy. Listen, okay. and this is the thing that people people were like, I think she was Hydra. I was like, never. I, first of all, I named her. Her name in the credits is uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. agent. I call her Phyllis Jenkins. And I was like, Phyllis Jenkins is about her job. She got on the elevator and was like, I don't know you i don't know you right so that's just what we do we we regulate and keep everything together so yeah yeah i know i was like it was so perfect from that standpoint now is that how you came to know chris evans or did you know him before then you know, I was a fan of his before then, but that was the first time I ever worked with him. And uh, the funny thing is, 
I got to know Chris Evans more on Twitter. And honestly, I don't remember how the Twitter Bay shenanigans began. Um, I, I think maybe he he responded to something I posted once and I was like, you notice me, we go together. And then from then on, you know, and he confirmed and he confirmed, that yes, he confirmed y'all Twitter it go there. together. He confirmed it on Instagram that we might we might tap over there a little bit. So yeah, but it was really just some Twitter foolishness that kind of kind of stuck and now everybody is is on it. I'm just having fun and doing silly crap and people just I don't know. Sometimes it makes it through. Yeah, it was very awkward when my uh, co-host, Carrie Champion, I had to explain to her that Chris Evans is already taken on Twitter. On Twitter. On Twitter. Yes, Yes, for sure. He's gone. She needs to go to maybe Instagram or another mechanism. LinkedIn LinkedIn is available. MySpace. Correct. Maybe Slack. I don't know. Outlook (laughs) calendar. There's a lot of places. (laughs) A lot of places you can grab him. But Twitter, he's snatched up. Well, you know, Chris Evans won every black woman's heart when he um, gentlemanly chivalrously uh, helped Regina King up the stage and everybody was like oh all black women everywhere was like you know what you are you- like hey <laughs> I bet them DMs looked a lot different after that. yeah but there was a lot a lot of melanated tech uh, DMs coming through after that yeah um on a, I'm glad we started with a light note because I do have a sad question to ask at the time that we're taping this podcast Michael K Williams uh we found out the day before the world did that he passed away and such a brilliant actor. I know you had a personal relationship with him. Um, What was your relationship with him? Like he was, and I mean, it's even crazy to even speak in past tense um, and saying anything about him. He was gentle. He was kind. He was shy. um, He was pensive. He was professional. Um, I met him working on Community. He did three episodes of Community. I think it was our third season. And um, everybody on the show was already a huge Wire fan. So when we heard he was coming, because we would always hear about Betty White's coming or, you know, but we, we, and we always would get really excited, whoever the new castmate for the week or for a couple of episodes were, was going to be. And then when we heard that it was Michael, we were just all like, oh my God. You know, everybody was just like, what we do? Because, you know, you know how you pose, he come, is he coming in? Like, you know, it was really like a moment for us as fans of amazing acting. And we were all blown away by how humble and um, unassuming he was because all of his characters were bigger than life. And I'm the kind of person where I collect people. Like if I meet somebody and they cool, um, I don't believe it needs to be a single serving friend. So I was like, well, I don't know if you, how you feel about this, but I believe we should exchange numbers and become friends. And he was like, I think so too. And so we would text each other through the years and we were friends on Twitter and would talk on Twitter and we both were activists and, and care about this nation. So whenever he had an initiative or something, even if it was Brooklyn based, he would DM me and be like, sis, can you, can you amplify? I'm like, absolutely. Um, we would run into each other on red carpets. Like it was just a a solid, loving connection with someone that I was a huge fan of who never allowed me to play a fan. Like he just did not allow, he he just was not built for people to fawn over him. And if you've seen some of the videos, like there's a video of him and Wendell Pierce, where Wendell Pierce is, is talking about what it was like to work with him and who he, what he means to the industry. And you see Michael with his head kind of, you know, down and and not that he didn't appreciate the love. It was almost like, he hadn't worked up yet to the belief that he was worthy of it from whoever it was coming from, right? So when we were on the community set, I remember, you know, we all were like, oh, Michael, it's gonna be great. You know, we're so happy to have you. And he was like, oh, no, I'm just trying to hang with y'all. Like, I'm just trying to, you know, make sure my comedy is, is, and we're all thinking, have you met you? Whatever you do is going to be amazing. Like, you're just it, you know? And it just, oh, just the loss of him. This is the thing when people die, sis, when they pass away, if you look closely, you can see the heart of who they really are based on the people that are affected, 
the way they are affected, how people speak of them, how people that don't even know them speak of them, right? And so that part of it just resonates. And if you want to know who he is, look at the people who loved him and look at the tributes that come in. And especially from the people that never met him for a day in their life, because you could, there's certain people that when they pass, you can feel their heart. You can feel who they are. And that's, um, that's Michael. And one other thing, we had run into each other on the Golden Globes uh, carpet. I, I posted a picture of that. And I, I can't even remember if he was nominated that year, but anybody that's done a red carpet knows that when you're on a carpet, um, it, whoever's most important that is coming up behind you uh, will regulate how long you get a, a moment. <laughs> you do not want to be on the carpet in front of Beyonce. <laughs> you know, you don't want somebody like that next up in the queue. And I remember I was I was just taking my picture and Michael was coming through and, you know, he was Michael K. Williams. I didn't even know Brown. He was Michael K. Williams. And so I'm grabbing my stuff and hustling off. And he said, no, 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 sis, don't wait. No, no, no. Let's get this picture right quick. And he's like, you you take your time. You have your moment. He he just was not made of ego. That's the best thing I can say. I mean, I could talk about him all day. He was he was a lovely man. Yeah, I, I met him in passing too. And like you, he would DM me and say, hey, I got this initiative that I'm doing because he was such a giver. I, I think that would be that would be the perfect way that I would kind of sum up who he is. And you're right with the tributes from Window, from even, I mean, David Simon, who the creator of The, of the Wire was at a, a loss for words. And just Niecy Nash, so many different people uh, had such wonderful things to say about him and, and not even about his acting, but just about who he was as a person. You brought up something interesting about fame. And I'm wondering as somebody who um, is very well known uh, and on has done so many hit projects, movies, shows, commercials, how do you process the fact that people are constantly looking at you in a way that you don't look at yourself? You know, I I actually believe in pulling the curtain back. I, you know, anytime, and I'm glad you said known or someone that's known because I don't think of myself as famous at all. I think I might be recognizable, but you know, I'm from Cleveland, got a big old apple head. I am, I'm recognizable wherever I go because I look like everybody's cousin. So I'm used to someone going, don't I know you? Recognizable is different than fame and, and being a celebrity. I don't carry myself as a celebrity. I don't think of myself as a celebrity. So for me, it's weird because I, I feel like what you see of me on an interview like this or, or on Twitter is who I am. This is not my representative. This is not, well, I would like to talk to you, but I'm just not that chick. Like this is, this is me. This is me back home in East Cleveland. This is me, you know, on a red carpet. This is me on set. This is just me. So most people, their perception of me is pretty accurate unless they have an agenda and then that's their own stuff and I leave them to it. But um, I don't allow anyone to put me on a pedestal because I don't deserve to be there. I don't let anybody worship me because I don't deserve to be worshiped. I am in this life to use my platform for good, to try to help all of us get over, right? But it's not about me. It's, it's always about God. It's always about other people. It's always about us as a community coming together to make things better for everybody else. So I don't even, I don't even operate in that. Oh, nah, we don't. If I meet someone, they come, I say, oh, come on over here and talk to me and stop being crazy. Now, come on now. This is just me. Stop it. I'm going to talk to you in a minute about how you've used your platform so wonderfully, but I know about Cleveland because I lived in Cleveland. Ooh, come on. Yeah, I'm from Detroit originally, but and you know, I mean, even from Detroit, you know, Cleveland. Yes, exactly. Just like we know Chicago. Exactly. Like, those three cities Baltimore, are very, yep, all this, Baltimore, all this, all... very linked. But I, I was an intern at the Plain Dealer 
And so I lived in Cleveland Heights for a summer. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So I know about, um, was that Hot Sauce Williams? Come on now. You're right. I know about the Polish boys. Don't uh, you talk to me about no Polish boy. Wait a minute. I know about the huff, Polish boys. Huff bakery right. cakes? Huff bakery <laughs> cakes? Hello? Cakes. Hello? Yes, I do. I know about that. Um, and back in back in that day, uh, I knew about a, a lovely little social spot called Vales. Oh, uh, Vales on the Circle. Vales on, on the Circle. Vales on the Circle. <laughs> you taking me back, girl. That's like, that's yeah. my high school, college years right there. Yeah, that's old school Cleveland, but mm-hmm. I loved Cleveland. I had a blast there. And, you know, if you grew up in Detroit, it, at the very least, you come into Ohio every summer to go to Cedar Point. See, these people don't know. They don't know about Cedar Point. They don't know. And they don't know about Jagger Lake either, which is made rest in peace. Jagger Lake is gone. But yes, Jagger yeah, Lake and Cedar <laughs> Point was it. Yeah, that was it. Now, you you brought up your platform and the way that you use it. It's so much different than you. You see, I'm going to call you this, whether you like it or not, the way a celebrity typically uses it. Uh, this is a question I ask every guest on this podcast. Since the name of it is Jamel Hill is Unbothered. When did you, Yvette Nicole Brown, become unbothered? Uh, August 12th, 1971. <laughs> the day you were born. <laughs> I came here unbothered, honey. I, you know, listen, I, I was raised by a phenomenal woman who instilled in me and my brother the importance of, of speaking up for people in need, um, fighting for yourself when someone has wronged you. I believe the biggest fight of your life is not over. And this is my pinned tweet too. It's not about whether somebody thinks you're cute or talented or whatever. I only rise up if somebody comes from my character. If you try to say something uh, uh, slick about who I am as a person and the way I move through life, we gonna dance. But if you don't like my face or my body or what I do on the television, I could care less. I'm not about to play play. I am down for my people. I'm down for every marginalized group of people. Um, I call a spade a spade. I am very kind, but I'm also, I don't suffer fools gladly. So anybody that thinks they're going to pop in because I'm a kind person and and run roughshod over my mentions or over me or anybody that I care about or I believe needs to be um, represented, they will meet East Cleveland. And I don't care. It is what it is. <laughs> I don't care, sis. Like I've said, I think people don't believe me. I don't care how many followers I have. I don't. And everybody that any company that hires me knows that I don't care about that. So they, when they hire me, they know there might be a moment Yvette going to have to get rowdy on Twitter about something that matters. I'm never going to be getting rowdy because somebody said, I don't like your character. I don't care. I don't like you. I don't care. What I said was the truth. My favorite thing that I think you've ever said, um, and I didn't hear you say this on Twitter, was my mouth got hands. Yeah, I said that, I said that on uh, Hollywood was, Unlocked. Hollywood Unlocked. That was yes. the first time I ever said it, and it came to my mind, and I was like, "It's true, though. I'm gonna say it." And my mouth does have hands, and I'm and I'm okay with that. I remember I did uh, I did the new edition story with you know all those wonderful actors, and Real Tank was playing. I think he played Gerald Busby in that, and we were having this great debate about um, boys to men versus Jodeci. And of course, I'm East Coast family, so I'm boys to men camp. And so we were going back and forth, and it started with just me and Tank, and then it ended up being like the entire cast and crew was like. A hundred of us sitting there debating both. And most people love both and we all love both, but people were standing for who their crew was. And as I kept going and kept going, even if the crowd got bigger on the Jodeci side, I stayed, I stood strong for boys to men. And Tank was like, Dag, you built for rebuttal. And I was like, I'm putting that on a t-shirt because it's absolutely true. And I think every black woman is. I think that we're raised to not be afraid to speak our mind. You know, we're gonna be vilified anyway. We're gonna be told that we're not that something's wrong with us anyway, right? So why should we not speak truth to power every chance that we get? You know, and and I think that your platform is for that. I think people think, oh, I got a platform, I can't say nothing. No, you have the platform so you can say something. 
it's so many other Hollywood actors that you talk to. They don't really feel that way. I mean, there's this perception and I didn't realize this till I moved to LA. I've been out here almost three years is that there's this perception that Hollywood is just super liberal and that so progressive and that shit couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, you have an element of that. Don't get me wrong, but there's a lot of people in this town, in that, in this particular industry you're in, that's just trying to protect what they got. Uh, It's something Tamika Mallory put on her Instagram a long time ago that stuck with me. A lot of y'all don't want to see progress. A lot of y'all just want to be comfortable. And that is like, I know it was a word. I was like, ooh, I felt that in every part of my spirit. And there's a lot of that in your industry. So were you ever concerned or fearful that some of the things that you say on Twitter, that somebody's looking at you like, oh, I kind of wanted her for this job, but now I don't know. If I lose a job because I spoke truth on Twitter or anywhere else and that ain't my job, this is the thing that people don't understand. When I entered this industry, my goal was to do one commercial and be on one sitcom. I am already so far beyond that, that if the Lord, and it would be the Lord that says I go no further, know that. If the Lord said you will go no further, and I'd be like, thanks God, this was a good run. And also I'm a legal secretary by trade. I have a degree. I, I don't have ego in this. I will work at McDonald's or Starbucks. So if everything goes terribly wrong, I will just get another job. And I save my money, bring it. I don't care. I wish people really understood that I don't care. And the thing is this, if somebody decides that because Yvette spoke truth about this, I can't hire her, that that reflects on you. Because truth needs to be told. And I believe that I will have more opportunities, more of the right opportunities because of who I am as a person than any of the superficial wrong opportunities. This, This is all a, we all in the matrix anyway, girl, this mess ain't real. And we can't take none of it with us when we go. So what are we holding on so dearly for? Like if you, if I got up to heaven and the Lord said, you know that you could have spoke up about the abortion ban in Texas, but you were concerned about your show and you didn't. That's a mark against you because a lot of people were harmed. I'm trying to get my well done, sis. I, I don't care about this, man. Hollywood, I don't care. It's a job. I'm grateful, but it's a job. Yeah, it doesn't define who you are. It does not. Not at all. My ego is not wrapped up in being an actress or anything else that I do. I, my, I don't wake up in the morning and feel good about myself because I'm an actress or I'm a host or whatever. It's, that's not where my being decent and doing good, getting in good trouble is what is what makes me go, OK, this is what it's this is what I'm here for. At the time we're taping this podcast and by the time it airs, I think this part will be over with. But I, I feel the need um, to ask you this anyway. Uh, how are you feeling about this recall? Oh, girl. Oh, girl. <laughs> I know. Ooh, girl. So I, I've talked about this on the podcast before. And so this is one thing I hate about this recall, other than this is just some nonsensical California shit. Right. Is that as a black person, we always voting for our survival. Always. Like can't tell you maybe since president barack obama the last time i voted for actual vision and not so the worst shit can't happen that's right and it's just like i'm so sick of being in this like you know i don't know gavin newsom i mean i know him but i don't you know what i'm saying it's like i hear you yeah, i hear what you okay, say you, cool. you, you cool i hear what you saying on some level we got our agreeance and our disagreeance right but i'm strictly doing this because fuck larry elder exactly, that's basically exactly because i'm like I, and caitlin jenner i'm gonna tell you what ain't gonna happen is that all right i cannot vote for the dude that's sitting up here being a pro-slave owner right and larry you elder like the reparations just, need to go to the slave owners i was like negro negro please <laughs> I said much worse than that. I have never been more offended in my soul than hearing that fool say that mess. No, I I, I hear you. I'm just I'm just really frustrated for uh, just always 
it just seems like these consequences are just so dire. Like we can't get out of this rut of like everything is at stake all the time. I'm at a loss, you know, and as tired as I am and I, as tired as I know you are, what happens if we throw in the towel? If everybody that's sounding the alarm, everyone that's on the hill yelling, watch out below, stopped doing that, where are we? Because the people that want to harm us don't take time off. They don't get tired. Like this whole recall situation, they sat up and thought about this. They planned it. They put money into it. They don't get tired of doing evil. So that means we can't get tired of doing good. Well, um, I share that frustration and certainly that sentiment. And it's been sobering to deal with this reality is that I realize that the people that say they're you know, on our side or say they're on the right side of history actually don't have the stomach for the fight. Yeah, they actually don't. And so I think that's a lot of the issue. Like you mentioned, what have we been talking about in this first year of Biden's presidency? The filibuster yep. and um, voting rights, the, the John Lewis Act. Yep, exactly. We have said once again, black people are saying if you don't get rid of these two things, right, or if you don't get rid of the filibuster and thus begin to strongly get this John Lewis Act Pass, pass then we're going to be back at where we were literally a few months ago or have been in the past four years yeah. and i don't know if we just not yelling loud enough and people are not listening but it feels like at the establishment democrats they are going to lose people i was like do y'all just like lose an election do y'all not want to be in power because it's hard not to notice the difference when republicans get in power actually they don't even need to get in power it feels like they still run in the country and i'm like yeah they're not in power now and and right. everything is hinging on what they choose to do and it's 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 quaint that you said back to 2016 we'll be back to 1965 right and what they're doing is literally just erasing every every gain we had the Voting Rights Act protected everyone. People think that it was an act for black people. It protected everyone's vote. And the John Lewis Act will protect everyone's vote. So the people are missing that, right? And I think what it is, is that if you have not had a boot on your neck in this country from the time you were born, you don't really know how urgent it is, right? I The analogy I use for racism and, and white privilege really is I'm 5'2", right? And if I get on a plane, I probably can stand up at my seat at any on any plane. There's no leg room that's not sufficient for me. Um, only problem I'll have on a plane is trying to get my bag out, right? Somebody that's 6'2 or 6'5 is struggling on every plane they get on. They ain't got enough leg room. They got to crouch down when they come in. Now, what would it be for me to go, you know, I know you said it's difficult. Can't be that bad. Come on. It's not my place to tell someone who is struggling, that their struggle is not real, especially if it's not a struggle that I have. And so it's hard to see beyond your little situation when you've never had to see beyond your situation. So if we say to them, it is important to, to end this filibuster so we can get voting rights passed, and they're like, oh, come on. Even if we don't get it passed, like what's what kind of laws could they pass that would hurt people? Don't be an alarmist. <laughs> right. You know what I'm saying? Yes. It's because they've never had their rights questioned. I think Joe Biden is, is a lovely man, and I think he really does have a heart for people. I just think he doesn't fully understand what is at stake for us. He doesn't get it because he never had to live it. But selfishly, there's a lot at stake for him, even from a selfish standpoint. If he just eliminated our feelings from the equation, there's a lot for you, too. There's a legacy that you're trying to build, and you can't build that with, without us. It's a package deal. But he also feels that by the strength of his personality and his heart, 
that he can win people over. Like he's the one that said, you know, I can work across the aisle, all of that. He he is he knows Mitch McConnell and knows how how vicious and nasty that man is, right? How evil. I think Mitch McConnell is evil. Oh, I totally agree. How evil that man is. And he still thinks that the 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 power of his goodness, and I do think Mr. Biden's a good man, the power of his goodness can counteract that evil. And he just, I think he's just got a blind spot about how determined they really are. And at a certain point, they're even more determined to stop us than they are to make nice with another white man. And I think that he's so used to white men making nice with other white men that he thinks he's got it in the bag and he doesn't. They hate us more than they love him. You know, this was something I noticed, too, when uh, Barack Obama was presidency. And it also is what it takes, I think, to be a politician. There is a you have to believe in the system. So they're going to possess a blind spot that we don't have. Like I'm like, I gave up on this shit a long time ago, but I'm willing to crush this system, break it down completely and let's rebuild something that's better. They don't think that way. They feel like, oh no, the way that it was constructed, it's supposed to work. And if we just do this and we just do that, if we rely on these sort of naive Pollyannish principles, that things will work out. And it's like, that's not how it is. And Barack Obama, with all due respect, believed too much in the goodness of white people. He just did. And I feel like Joe Biden is making that same mistake. The same mistake. And I think, I don't know that I believe that, that Barack believed in the goodness of white people, because even if he had a blind spot there, Michelle definitely did not. And I believe that she as a black woman was very, she, she explained to him what, what, if he had a blind spot about what they would do to us and what they think of us, I believe she was like, let me tell you a little bit about this situation. I think it was more of him believing that we had come over, right? Him winning was so monumental. I think for a minute, and, and I think the nation did too, I never thought we were post-racial. I never believed that. But I believed that we had crossed a barrier that would be hard to go back. Once he's in and the world does not explode and we maybe somebody would start to realize that we're just people, right? I think he believed in that. Um, and he was wrong because, again, they, they don't like us. They hate us. They don't want us to thrive. They don't. I, sorry. They, they don't. And I'm speaking of the people that uh, I'm speaking of the racist, white supremacist, white people. I, I always got to do the disclaimer. Not all white. They're people. Not all white people. Not all white <laughs> we people. don't mean all white people. But we know I, the white people know. They know. They know who they we're know, talking about. They know. They know. <laughs> and this is the thing. I'll be telling people on Twitter. I said, now, this didn't made your little heart feel some kind of way that you have to check yourself. Now, I, I ain't talking about you unless I'm talking about you. Right. And if I'm talking about you. That's something you got to work through. That ain't got nothing to do with me. Don't come here with your tears because I said something that made you feel some kind of way. A hit dog will holler. If somebody came on here right now and said, this ain't nothing but a room full of bitches. I, I, they ain't talking to me. <laughs> right. I wouldn't jump up. <laughs> I wouldn't jump up. You know what I'm saying? Like you can say whatever you want about black women. If it does not apply to me, they ain't talking about me. Right. So I don't understand why the need for not all white people is necessary, but I go on and do it because I get tired of my mentions being overrun with tears. <laughs> Uh yeah, your mentions um probably look about as bad or worse than mine, which I didn't girl, think. Girl, we, we hold a funeral every day, girl. <laughs> <laughs> we lay on the rest every day. With every day. And cause sometimes uh I got time and I'm gonna give you the attention you asked for. You asked for it, you gotta get it. <laughs> I, I really love when you have time. Yo, I got time. And let me tell you something. You have time often, and I will get my popcorn and my easy chair and I go, let me cause cause that's the thing that gets me. You have had to handle people so much. I am surprised that people still try you. I, I don't know. That it's not going to end well. It's not going to end well. So I'm like, what is deficient in you that makes you think that you can step to her? What? 
It's happening. So yeah, no, I, I meet them where they are sometimes. Yeah. I got to. I got to meet them where they are. That's right. I meet them where they are. East Cleveland comes out of you. The D comes out in me. Right. You know. Uh, just so uh, this won't devolve into us uh, shaking our hands and yelling at clouds. Uh, I'm going to take a quick break because uh, I have so much more I want to ask you about, uh, particularly community and definitely your illustrious commercial career, as in the commercials that you did, because you did a hamburger helper commercial, correct? I did. Yeah, I did. Yo, back in the day. Yo, yo, <laughs> I used that to, was that was a food group. People don't know about that hamburger helper used to go hard. So know this, uh, know this, know that. So anyway, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more wisdom, more pearls, more gems, more diamonds from Yvette Nicole Brown. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As you all just heard from Yvette Nicole Brown, uh, she's from East Cleveland. You also heard me say that I spent a few months living in Cleveland as an intern for the local paper, The Plain Dealer. So I have a story to tell about my time in Cleveland. The year was 1996, and it was the summer before my senior year in college. Now, at this point in my newspaper career, I had interned at the Lima News in Lima, Ohio, the Detroit Free Press, and the Philadelphia Inquirer. Now, I was very excited about the Cleveland internship because it was my very first sports internship. I'd interned in news and feature departments, but sports always was where I wanted to be. I was excited about being in Cleveland because Cleveland was a really good sports town. And the summer that I interned, Cleveland's baseball team was red hot. So I knew I'd be covering a lot of baseball. I also knew this was the summer of the Olympics in Atlanta and the U.S. men's basketball team. They were going to be holding an exhibition in Cleveland, which I did get to cover. Now, when you're an intern, it's hard to find housing because it's not a lot of places that will give you a three month lease. And if you pay month to month, you're going to be paying an arm, leg and two thighs. So what I did was rent a room in someone's house, which was the second time I'd done that on an internship. So I was comfortable with this arrangement. Now, I rented this room in Cleveland Heights from this older white lady named Jean Stanley. My accommodations were good. I had a nice sized room. The neighborhood was cool. I had good parking. I was straight. Old girl had a couple cats, but I wasn't tripping on that because I'd grown up with cats my whole life. As a sports intern, I worked a lot of late hours covering sporting events. And when I wasn't covering sporting events, of course, I was hanging out. So it wasn't a thing where I was all up in Jean Stanley's mix. Well, one weekend, Jean Stanley informed me she was going to be gone for the weekend. Now, at that point, I had company maybe once because I was conscious of the fact that I couldn't just be running folks in and out of her crib just as a sign of respect. I was paying rent, but it wasn't my house. So Jean Stanley was gone. And my best friend, Kelly, came to visit that weekend. One of my other friends, Sekou, who also was an intern, the three of us decided we were going to hang out. And we had ourselves a time. We kicked it, partied, and then we came back to Gene Stanley's spot to keep the party going. 
Now, we had already been drinking, but we wanted to drink a little bit more back at the crib. The problem is we never stopped to get any alcohol on the way back. Don't ask me why. I have no idea. So we had none. At least we had none of our own. But guess who did have some liquor? Gene Stanley. We went into the living room where she happened to have a little mini bar and we saw she had some vodka. So we started pouring it up. Now, we all eventually wound up passing out in my room where there were two twin beds. The thing is, Jean Stanley was coming back the next day and I didn't know what time of day she was coming home. Somehow, thank God, I woke up early and I was on some risky business shit or rather some Ferris Bueller shit when Ferris was trying to get home before his parents got home. And if you've seen Risky Business, Tom Cruise was trying to get the crib straight before his parents came back. I was on that shit. But there was the matter of the vodka that I had to tend to. Now, I actually wasn't 21 at the time. I was 20. So I couldn't just go out and buy some to replace what we drank. Say cool was 21. But let's be honest, it was like eight or nine in the morning. Not an ideal time to make a liquor worm. So I aborted that plan and went with plan B, which was water. Now, we probably ran through about half her vodka. So I just filled it back up with some water. So it looked like the relatively full bottle that was there before. And thank God I did. Jean Stanley did come home that morning. She knew Kelly was staying the weekend, but I never indicated there would be any men up in the crib. Luckily, Sekou was gone before Jean Stanley came back. But that water filled vodka bottle haunted me. I still had about another month before my internship ended. And every day that I came home, I lived in fear that I was going to walk through the door and Jean Stanley was going to be sitting at her dining room table with the vodka ready to interrogate me like this. You brought the bottle of beer. About 11.15. I bought the beer and I accidentally dropped it. You bought the bottle of beer. At 1115. At 11, yeah, at, at 1115, I, yeah, 1115. Then why wasn't the bottle cleaned up? Why did we find it still there, spilled on the floor after the shoot? When I was, after we was leaving, after, after I left, other people was coming in They when we was leaving. But you don't remember what they... But they look... But you bought the bottle of beer definitely at 12.15. Yeah, it was 12.15. Exactly. If I'm not mistaken, it was Now you see something. Now you see now. You done fucked up. You know that, don't you? I mean, I was on edge the next few weeks. I eyed that damn vodka every damn day. And... I would have just gotten her another bottle, but Jean Stanley was always home. She was retired, didn't seem to have a whole lot of friends, so she never left the house. So I couldn't just swap bottles on the sneak tip. Finally, it was time for me to move out. I handed her the keys to her place, thanked her for letting me have a room there, and I never saw that woman again. Now, if I was a G or at least not a jerk, I should have just sent her a bottle of vodka. But I was 20, not very thoughtful, also broke. But I'm not going to lie. I would have loved to see her face when she cracked open that absolute and finally tried to taste that vodka. Anyway, back to more with a vet, Nicole Brown.
Okay, in my research of you, Yvette, the most fun fact I learned, and I don't know how this escaped me, was that you were once managed by Michael Bivens and signed to Motown. I was. What had happened was... <laughs> what had happened was, um, I was a huge New Edition fan when I was a kid. Um, I... Only time I've ever wanted to be famous in my life was as a teenager because I was like, if I get famous, I can meet New Edition and Malcolm Jamal Warner. So I started singing in like talent shows and and just wanting to make it so that I could meet these guys that I had crush on. And so um, Michael Bivens started managing. He had Bivton Records under Motown and he was managing Boys to Men. And um, I was in college and he was coming through town as BBD. And I, um, I found out where he was staying. Thank you to Jeff Dyson who told me where they were staying. And I sung for him in a hotel lobby and was signed to the East Coast family. And um, we did a song and we we did some some spot dates and whatnot, hung, hanging out with Boys to Men. And we did Showtime at the Apollo. And it was a fun, fun time um, in my life. And I thought music was my thing, you know? It didn't work out, so I shifted to acting. But yeah, I was in the East Coast family one for all video, crazy. 19 or 20 year old me in there singing on some stairs. Oh my goodness. So um, during that time, I mean, it was just such an incredible music time with Boys to Men and uh, ABC and just all the, and even BBD obviously still going strong. So what was it like to kind of be on that scene? You know, it was amazing. I, I've always been a music fan. I, you know, I loved Prince and Michael Jackson and DeBarge when I was younger and um, New Edition was big in my world. And um, I remember when East Coast Family was coming up, it was right when Mary's first album, Mary J. Blige's first album came out. We were in Texas shooting the video for One for All, All for One uh, when her first single dropped. And I just remember feeling like, dang, this is like, you know, she was my age. I think she might be a year older than me, but it's like we were like 20, 21 years old and music was wide open and everybody's life was about to change. And it was the first time that music was being made for our generation. Like when we were coming up, we had like Stacey Lattisall and I think New Edition in later years, but we were about to move into that season of time where a whole genre of music was just for 20 something people. Kids nowadays don't even know what it was like. Cause when I was little, you know, we loved Luther and Anita Baker cause that's what our mama was playing. You know, we love, we love them, but I'm saying it was like, we didn't have our artists. These kids now have entire 20, 30, 40 artists that are just making music for them. And uh, Mary, Mary J. Blige and, and New Edition and BBD and Boys to Men and Jodeci were like that happening for us for the first time. So it was exciting to be a tiny, tiny part of the beginning of that. Um, Michael was one of the first to have a stable of artists, you know, and to have a video where he's celebrating all of his artists. And um, so it was kind of cool to be a part of a family and know that that was your crew. And now everybody got a crew. Everybody is all together, but Michael was a visionary. And I don't think Biv gets the um, the respect and the uh, the flowers that he deserves for all the innovation and, and ideas that he had. He had ideas that were really ahead of their time. I know it must have been a different experience for you to see things come full circle. And then next thing you know, you're in a new edition story. <laughs> so uh, with you having that experience and background, having been a former Biv artist, um, you know, how was this new edition experience being able to be in such a terrific miniseries? It was so, it was amazing. And I think a lot of people think that that was just offered to me, especially because I played Michael's mom, but I had to audition. And I had to audition, I think a couple times for that. And I was up against everybody in our age group because all the sisters wanted to be one of the moms in that movie. And so I auditioned and I got cast as Michael's mom. And then Robbie Reed reached out to me. She's the cast, amazing casting director who cast the movie. She reached out and said, we think we're going to bump you over to be Ricky's mom. And I said, I said, I said, Robbie, I've never done this in my life. I said, but you don't understand, like, it ha I have to be Michael's mom. I said, there's a scene in the script where she's in the stairwell and she's telling Michael, you know, you got to go up there and you got to sign that contract. 
And I said, you don't understand. If I don't get him out of that hallway, he doesn't get Yvette Brown from East Cleveland. And that's how my entire career, you talking about motivation for an actor, what's my motivation? My motivation in that moment is to get this baby up there to sign this contract, to become New Edition, to become BBD, to discover that little fluffy haired girl in East Cleveland 20 years from now. So I was literally like, you got, you got to let me be her. I, I feel her, I understand this is my story too. And they were like, all right, dang, <laughs> go on beard in. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to fight for for the right to continue to be her and fight for the role. But yeah, it was amazing being on set, you know, as a new edition fan to be on set with all of the guys all um, every day. Uh, most of them came to set and to be there with Brooke Payne. And it was magic. It was magic. And uh, little 12 year old Yvette listening to Candy Girl for the first time in East Cleveland. Hey, come on. <laughs> come on now. I'm on set with the fellas. Come on now. Playing their mama. You know, watching so much of the things that were a part of my childhood being recreated. Well, that's how it was for a lot of us who watched it. I mean, that was something I don't think we ever could have dreamed of when we were fans of New Edition, thinking like one day they're going to make a movie about these guys. Like we weren't thinking that then. And certainly when they got to the part where they progressed to the if this isn't love stage in their career, everybody I know got up in their living room and did the routine. Did we not? Did we not? Yeah, everybody did it. <laughs> Ooh, everybody. And it, was a, and it was a good movie too. Like, you know, sometimes these biopics is, you know, but this was this was an amazing it was a it was a love letter to them and it was also a love letter to us as fans you know it just ah it was i can't believe i got to be a part of that you know and and looking at the the breadth of your career one thing that stands out to me it seems like everything that you've gotten and everything you chose to do firmly fits the what's for me is for me principle. It's for me. Yeah, because I, I think about um in reading about how you got your early start on girlfriends correct yeah. yep yeah, you have to tell the story about how you wound up booking this role. Yes. Okay. So once again, this is the second Robbie Reed story of the podcast. I had just gotten dropped by an agent. I had no credits. I had done a lot of commercials, but no credits on TV, maybe like one line on something. But there was no reason that Robbie Reed should have seen my postcard, which is what I sent, and thought, let me bring this girl in. And my postcard just said, hi, Miss Reed. Uh, you, I know you can't say girlfriends. If there's anything I'm right for, please think of me. And she happened to be casting uh, Tony's sister at that time. Girl, this was so long ago, we had pagers. There were no cell phones. It was a pager. So my pager number was on this. And I remember I got a call on my pager and I didn't know the number. And I was like, oh, let me just call. And it was Robbie Reed's office saying, can you come in and audition? So I got to the audition. It was every doll that had ever worked in Hollywood. And I walked in and was like, I'm not getting this. <laughs> like, as soon as I came in, I was like, this is not going my way. So it kind of freed me up to just have fun in the moment because it was like, this is, I'm not gonna get it. And um, I got it. And I got to do two two episodes of one of my favorite sitcoms. And there's that one scene with um, Tony and her sister that is so powerful and required acting chops that I didn't think I had. And I didn't want to tell nobody, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> so I just was like, you know, I prayed, I was like, Lord, please. And one of the things that I share all the time about this story, when I tell this story is Golden Brooks, first of all, Every one of the girlfriends were lovely. All of those women to this day, just dear, sweet women. And they were kind to me in a way they did not have to be. And uh, one of the things that Golden did for me is I was panicking right before the, the show in front of the audience. It was an audience and I didn't know if I was going to be able to do these lines. It was just a lot of fear. And she came and sat and she said, what, what's going on with you? How are you feeling? And I was like, I'm terrified. And I'm like, I don't want no lines. And I don't want any people. And it's just, you know, and she said, I said, I'm scared. And she said, you're not scared. I said, I am. She said, you're not scared. I said, well, what am I in? She said, you're excited. She said, what you feel 
is your excitement and your joy about this moment. This is the moment you prayed for and it's about to happen. And think of your fear, your excitement as fuel in a car. Can a car go without gas? I was like, no golden, it can't go without gas. She said, okay, so whenever you're about to do something and you feel those butterflies or that excitement, just say to yourself, I've got my gas. And she told me that at the very beginning of my career, and that has carried me the rest of my career. And that's why I always say her full name when I tell that story, because she saved me in that moment. And I have used that every single time I get excited about an opportunity. It's like, I got my fuel. Now let me go. Girlfriends to this day, I still get recognized for it. Um, my friendship with Tracy Ellis Ross and, and Jill and, and Persia all began there. And it was a great experience. Jennifer Lewis played my mom. That began there. Karima Westbrook, that's now on All American. She played our sister. Like, it was just a wonderful experience. Um, and I should never have had it because I had no credits. There's <laughs> no reason. Well, Hollywood seems to be um, very infatuated with the idea of rebooting things. Would you like to see a Girlfriends reboot? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. And I say that even if I don't get asked to do nothing on it. I want to see it as a fan. And I think we didn't get the proper ending that we were supposed to get because the UPN, there was an actor strike that happened. And then by the time the strike was over, UPN was gone and had become a WB. And it just was, the way it ended was not good. Like we need, we need some closure for those girls and, um, and for Reggie who played William. So I, I think, yeah, for sure. I'd love to see that. You know, the, the one thing that is uh, very prevalent in Hollywood, like you mentioned that when you went out for that role, like, Every manner and every type was out for that um, particular role. But in talking to black actresses in particular, uh, how do you deal with the fact that if there is a role that's available, you know, for a black actress, that you will see everybody from you to Alfre Woodard to Gabrielle, you like y'all will all be going for the same thing. Cicely Tyson when she was here, Cicely Tyson, right? Exactly. It was like it would literally be everybody. Everybody. Um, do you feel like that's something that has gotten better, or is it still the same? You know, I think it probably has gotten better because there's more opportunities for us now. You know, back in the day, the reason we all would be at an audition for Girlfriends or for Community, because that was another where it was like everybody auditioned for Shirley, is because there weren't, we never got good roles often. You know what I mean? It's like every three or four pilot seasons, would there be something that you'd really, really, oh, I'd love to get this, you know? And so everybody would come out. And also I think it's because they somehow think that we're a monolith. You know, you're either... The loose one, the, the like the the nymphomaniac, every come on everybody person, or you're the 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 nun, the one that's you know prudish, right? And then that's it. You're one of those two things, right? You're the matronly prudish woman, or you're the 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 hot one. This is what it used to be, right? And maybe it is still now. They don't. I mean, they're finding nuances because we have a Viola Davis and a Carrie Washington that were allowed to do those roles and really make something rich on Scandal and um How to Get Away with Murder. That started to shift things for us, but for the most part, they. We're the best friend. We're the we're the voice of wisdom, right? And so if you're the voice of wisdom, you can be any age. Magical Negro, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you were the magical Negro. So even if you were 12, you were the sage. Let me tell you what I've learned in seventh grade. You know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. So I think they just believe that we could be um, any of those things. They don't allow us to be quirky. They don't allow us to be studious. Like there's certain certain nuances that white actresses are allowed to be that we aren't allowed to be. So they would just say, bring in the black women. And we all would go because we also are all talented and know that we can make it what we need it to be. But yeah, <laughs> I know. Right. I do think it is a little bit more nuanced now, but I don't know if Hollywood deserves the credit for that. 
necessarily. I think some of it is that more of us are a little are more in charge, and we're in a different. Yeah, exactly. Like mm-hmm. Robin Thede, right? Yeah, Lena. I mean, there's Robin Thede, Issa Rae. Like, there's many more of us in charge right. and able to make those decisions and have complex characters. So I don't really give the system of Hollywood any credit for that at all. You've done uh, TV, films, voiceovers, cartoons. A lot of actors sometimes get stuck and only want to do one thing. They feel like, oh, if I do film, I can't do TV. If I do TV, I can't do this. Why were you never that way? Because I'm Samuel Jackson. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I always, I literally always really do believe that you don't let anybody else define what is right for you. And the reason a lot of people didn't do voiceovers or or television if they were film actors because they thought that that was beneath them. Let's be real about what it is. There's certain people that think that doing game shows is beneath them or hosting game shows is beneath them. I I don't have no ego. So ain't nothing beneath me. So Yvette, you want to come be on this game show? I absolutely do. Absolutely. You want to host this show? Absolutely. You want to do one line on Family Guy? Absolutely. Because what people don't know is that one line on Family Guy pays the same as if I had done 50 lines on Family Guy. So I'm gonna go for five minutes and say this line and get my check and pay my mortgage for a month for that 15 minutes. And I don't care if somebody's like, well, I barely heard you. I don't care. They sent that check though. I think the secret to life, sis, is not thinking too highly of yourself. If you take that part, that ego part away, then the whole world opens up to you because we spend so much time saying no to stuff because, oh, was anybody gonna think of me? And I don't know if I could, if it's a good thing and it don't hurt nobody, and it don't hurt you and it's it's not outside of your boundaries. What's wrong with with doing that line on that show? Even if it's a co-star, what's wrong with it? I don't see anything wrong with it. I'll, 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 there's been things that you've seen me in where if you blink, you will miss me. Was that Yvette that just, I did an episode of iCarly uncredited. I'm sitting in the art room. I ain't got no line. Only way you know I'm there is if you look in the background and go, is that Yvette? Yes, it is. I don't care. Your credits in terms of commercials, maybe as long as your overall like acting and film and TV credits with Pine Saw, Big Lots, Target. No, I never did Target. You never did Target. You just love Target. That's all. I love Target. Listen, let me get closer to the mic. I love Target. (laughs) Before I ask the commercial question, have you figured out a way to go into Target and spend less than $200? Never. There ain't no way to go into Target and spend less than $200. Okay. (laughs) Only thing I can can think of, only thing I can think of is if you are blindfolded and have someone lead you to the aisle. I am looking for VHS tapes. They don't even make them no more. I'm looking for VHS tapes. Can, can you can kind gentlemen at the door, can you lead me to VHS tapes and then to the checkout? That's the only way. It's, it, no, it's, it's a $200 store. When you did those commercials, did you get the products for free? No. What? I just thought about it. No, you don't. Now, this is the thing. I was, I'm going back in my Rolex and anybody, no, I, I did like uh, Aquapod, which was Arrowhead water. I never got a case of water. I never got any hamburger helper. It's like, they didn't give you like six months worth, you know, all the flavors of variety. Nope, you don't, nope. They like, you better, you better take this residual check. You're going to get and go and get whatever water you try to get. Like I get, I get more free stuff now as an actor because of a tweet than I ever did for actually doing a, a gig. And this is the thing. I don't even be trying to get free stuff. I just be talking about stuff I like. If I like it, if I like it and I think it's great, I feel like everybody should know about it. Everybody. Now, sometimes, sometimes just the Cleveland in me be like, let me see if I can, let me see what this going to Like, like I love Legos. Like I love Legos, like right-handed guy. I love them. Like I was about to be doing a Lego set while we're doing this podcast, but sometimes I get so focused. I didn't want to, you know, miss out on this moment. 
But um, I started tweeting about Legos just because I love them. And then I was like, but I do have a birthday coming and they got a warehouse. <laughs> so let me just say, if you were thinking of perhaps cleaning out your warehouse, feel free. But I don't do that often. I don't I don't tweet to get. I tweet to celebrate and and to enjoy. And then, you know, if something great comes from it, then God bless. But speaking of your tweets, and this is a little bit on a somber note, I, I noticed that every so often a lot of people reach out to you because they have experienced the loss of a, of a parent. And that's something you obviously, unfortunately, had to experience recently as well. So I'm just wondering, you know, now, um, you know, just how are you doing with that? How are you processing? I know it's something that never goes away, but just where do you find yourself? Do you still have your parents? Yes, I still have both my parents. Yeah. It's something, it, the, the interesting thing about it is, I, I, sometimes I get emotional, sometimes I don't. I, I'm sorry, I can't control it. It is a loss like no other. And this is the thing, as a black woman in America, you go through a lot of loss, right? But there's a level of loss of, of your mom in particular, because I still have my dad, so I don't know what that's like, but the loss of your mother in particular, you are acutely aware that you have to figure out how to mother yourself. And no one tells you that. Like there's so many things that your mother tells you, drink some water, take a nap. Um, you're focusing on that too much. You bet you probably need to not let that become a thing or simple things like it's gonna be all right. You know, there's a, there's something about it. It's gonna be all right from your mother that's different than a, it's going to be all right from anybody else. It cannot be replicated. It cannot be duplicated. My father could say to me, it's going to be all right. And it's not the same. And as we know, life is about disappointment. We think that life is about celebration and wonderful things, but life is about disappointments more than the great stuff. So you're going to need a, It's going to be all right more than you need anything else in life. And I'm acutely aware that I'm never going to get that from the person I wanted the most from ever again. So I say to those of you that still have your mothers, cherish them. Cause everything that she may do that annoyed you or why she owe me about this again, like all of that stuff is the things that you're gonna miss. My mother used to come over, like if I was in, my mother never called before she came over. So if I was doing like, uh, you know, she like, I made you, this is your house, but it's my house. And she would come in. That's my dog. Everything. Right. I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> everything is my mother. So she would come in and I'd be like doing this. I'd be in the middle of this and my bedroom door would open and she'd come in and she'd come in bringing a, a bacon sandwich. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you ate today. Here you go. And I'm like, but mama, I'm on with your meal. I can't do this right now. It's so it's little things like that, that would aggravate me in the moment that I would give everything I have if this door opened and she walked in right now. I wish that she would interrupt this right now. So I'm saying to all of you listening, and I'm, I'm even though I'm always a blubbering mess, I, I am glad when people ask me about her one, because I want to honor my mother. Fran Hall was a real one. I want to honor her. Mama Fran. Mama <laughs> Fran. More than that, I want to give everyone that's listening um, a, a, a rallying cry to say, call your mother, go see your mother spend time with your mother, tell your mother how you feel about her, record your mother speaking, start a conversation with her and hit voice record on your phone. You ain't even got to tell her you're doing it. Get When she's in the kitchen doing something or walking through your house, videotape your mother because you're going to want to see her when she's gone. You're going to want to hear her when she's gone. Turn your recorder on and say, mom, tell me about your life. 
What was it like when you were my age? What was it like when you were five or 12 or whatever you remember and record it? Ask every question you always wanted to know because you feel like you're going to have them forever and you won't. No, that's good advice because um, I feel that way about my grandmother who I was very close to. I was like, I wish I'd have just... Sometimes when you're you're a kid and even as an adult, because you're so used to them being there to serve you, frankly, because they're your parent or your grandparent. And I just I wish I'd have just asked her more questions. I really wish I would have asked her about her life and, you know, not just about what she did, but what she went through, how she felt, how she processed emotionally what this was like, because a lot of black women particularly of certain generations before us, never got the space to be vulnerable. And I wish I would have done that. Uh, luckily, I've been able to do that a lot with my mother, particularly as I finish my memoir, which she's a huge chunk of. So I'm asking about family history and story, finding out things about my own mother's past. And I was like, you ain't need to share that, but okay, I'm gonna receive it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were women first. They were women before they were mothers, man. I don't know if I can take that, but I'm just gonna, I, I'm just gonna receive it. You can take it. Um, you know, a lot of people can relate to what you're going through and losing a parent. Also can relate to what you're going through with your dad as his, as his caregiver. You made a very bold decision, understandable decision when you decided to walk away from community uh, to care uh, for your father. And I loved how you described it as like, that was the easiest decision in the world. But I know when you're in a caregiver role with a parent that that's entirely different than what you're used to. So how have you been able to handle that? I honestly don't know any other way. Like I, I, I'm not somebody that could put my family in a home and walk away. I'm just not built like that. And I've had my dad now, it'll be nine years in, um, in December that I've had him. I feel that it is what we all are supposed to do if we're able. And most of us are able, but again, you have to put someone else's needs above your own. I am his sole caregiver, especially now that my mom's gone. It's just me and him. What he eats, when he sleeps, what clothes he wears, where he goes, all of that is my responsibility. And I take it as an honor to do that. I say all the time, it is the, the, the toughest, best thing I've ever done or the best tough thing that I've ever done. I have never had a regret. Um, I left community to do it. I took a lot of hits from the fans of community because I did it. They, a lot of people were very upset that I, I left that TV show. They just were very mad that I would no longer be playing Shirley. And I don't care. <laughs> and I didn't care then um, because it was my dad and he needed me and it was the right thing to do. And I've lost out on opportunities now because I can't really, especially now that my mom is gone, I can't uh, pick up and just go away to, Canada or somewhere else to, to film a movie or a TV show for months at a time. I didn't even want to go to Ireland to do Disenchanted. Not I wanted to do Disenchanted, but being in Ireland for three months, I just felt like something could go wrong and something did. My mom passed while I was over there. So you have to weigh every decision, like who's going to watch him, who's going to take care of him, what happens. Like it's all of that. That's a part of it. And so instead of giving myself that agita in my chest because I made that decision. It's just better for me to stay close to him and make decisions based on that. And I don't, I don't regret it. We will end this podcast on a high note. Um, we will end it with a game. And it's a game that I play with all my guests. It's very simple. Okay. But the game is based off, let's just say, extensive research into your past <laughs> and your present as well. Um, so the game is called This or That. The choice is yours. You can oh. get with this or you can get with that. I give you two choices, Miss Yvette, and you have to choose one. Oh, God. Underline that part. All right. All right. 
Grammy or Oscar? Which one would you rather win? Grammy. With your singing background, I am not surprised that you said that. <laughs> By the way, did you have a stage name when you were performing? No, I was just Yvette. I was myself. I've always been to myself, <laughs> my full name. Was. I guess uh, I was joking with you off air about how, like, how many times growing up were people like Dear Yvette. But then I just thought about it when Baby Boy came out. <laughs> that was another round you had to go through. <laughs> yeah, man. Yvette, is, it's got an interesting history. Sam and Diane or Sam and Rebecca? Because I know how you feel about Cheers. Sam and Diane. Sam and Diane, I just started watching Cheers again. Uh, Shelley Long is underrated, man. She's a comedic genius. And also the way the lady who played Rebecca turned out. Um, yeah, that, that I was going to say, that, that makes me look at Cheers so much differently. It really now. does. I can't, I can't even watch those years now. So I'm going to say I'm Sam and Diane all the way. Cooley High Harmony or two? Ooh, two. Two is dope. Bend a knee, come on. Bend a knee and, and Water Runs Dry Alone makes two the winner. I have to say, I'll Make Love to You is my least favorite song on that album. It was probably the, it might be the biggest song on that album, but like my least favorite. I was like, yeah, it's just, it was just too sappy. Yeah, that was my least favorite on that album too. But Bend a Knee and Water Runs Dry, man, forget it. Uh, Rhythm Nation or Control? Oh, oh, that's a tough one. My nose. I love control though. Control. Oh, I, I don't know. I got I got to rotate. Can we rotate? I can't. Mm-hmm. I can't choose that one. No, you I picked gotta. Rhythm Nation, but it, you know what? You can always say Rhythm Nation. That did come with a whole routine that we all had to learn. Are you talking about the song or the album? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm talking about the the song. I'm sorry. Rhythm Nation or Control oh, for so- song or album. Uh, I'm going with Rhythm Nation for song. okay for song. All right. Yeah, sorry, I, I should have made that because they were both okay. called. That was the album name. Should have yeah. made that clear. Candy Girl or Mr. Telephone Man. Oh, Candy Girl, because that was the beginning. Like, I remember the first, I was on the school bus first time I heard Candy Girl. I remember it, it like it was yesterday, Candy Girl, man. I was like, who are these black boys sounding like the Jacksons? And I love the Jacksons. So I was like, ooh, <laughs> Candy Girl. And finally, Community or The Office? Girl, Community. How am I, how am I gonna sell out my people? <laughs> You you were also on the office, Dude, but I got so. I got blood in community. Like blood, I got you do, community you is do. like cut a vein, man. Community, yes, community, yes. And that was one of those roles again. The the I'm a, I should start calling it the sneaky good Yvette Nicole Brown role, where you <laughs> <laughs> you and Dwight Schrute, man. I love me some office and community and Parks and Rec. Like I, got, I love, I love all I love all three of those. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me. It was so good to commune with you and have a conversation. We see each other in passing on Twitter and I'm always like, yes, sis. And you're like, yes, sis. And we've been able to do a couple of things together, but it's nice to sit down and like really talk to you. Let me say this. I am a huge fan of yours as a human being. I think that what you what you bring to the world is so good and you are multi-talented and multifaceted and not a not a nobody can put you in a box sis like what you bring to every area you step into is magic and i want you to know that i am honored and i was i was waiting i said oh she gonna call me one day not gonna let me be on i'm bothered come on call me let me be on you were on the short list (laughs) so when the call came i was like "Ah, get to be on so just know that you are you are loved and appreciated and celebrated by more than you even know and just keep your foot on the gases. Well, thank you. And one thing I'm working on through my own therapy is figuring out how to accept compliments. So, so you just say thank you. I, I, so I'm just going to say thank you and not deflect. There you go. <laughs> there you go. I appreciate it. Thank you again for joining me. Uh, Yvette Nicole Brown is getting out of here. Final segment coming up next. Fuck it, I'm bothered. Fuck 
fuck it, I'm bothered. Hit you with the spice that I offer. Fuck it, I'm bothered. As those of you listening know, I got married in November 2019 and no disrespect to anybody else's wedding, but I had the wedding of all weddings. Lots of love, laughter, good drinking, partying, just a beautiful time. Now, leading up to the wedding, one of the questions that came up was whether or not I wanted to provide food for the vendors working my wedding. And of course, my answer was yes. These vendors would be in for a long day, unable to take a real break. The very least I could do is offer them some food. But apparently this isn't a common courtesy and the uncommonness of it came to light recently through a popular hashtag or conversation on social media called AITA, which stands for Am I the Asshole? And what happens is people present situations and they allow the public to determine if they are indeed being an asshole. The latest edition of AITA involved an amateur photographer who agreed to photograph a friend's wedding for $250. And anybody out there who has gotten married knows that is ridiculously cheap. Even if you're on a tight budget, unless you get like your cousin with an iPhone to photograph and video your wedding, it's going to run you a couple hundred dollars and thousands of dollars if you're trying to pay top dollar or want to do something that's a little more highbrow. Now, here's what happened in this photographer's own words. On the day of, I'm driving around following the bride as she goes from appointment to appointment before the ceremony, taking photos along the way. I shoot the ceremony itself. And during the reception, I'm shooting speeches and people mingling. I started around 11 a.m. and was due to finish around 7.30 p.m. Around 5 p.m., Food is being served and I was told I cannot stop to eat because I need to be the photographer. In fact, they didn't save me a spot at any table. I'm getting tired and at this point kind of regretting doing this for next to nothing. It also is unbelievably hot. The venue is in an old veterans legion and it's like 110 degrees and there's no air conditioning. I told the groom I need to take off for 20 minutes to get something to eat and drink. There's no open bar or anything. I can't even get water and my two water bottles are empty. He tells me I need to either be the photographer or leave without pay. With the heat, being hungry, being generally annoyed at the circumstances, I asked if he was sure and he said yes. So I deleted all the photos I took in front of him and took off saying I'm not his photographer anymore. If I was to be paid $250, honestly, at that point, I would have paid $250 just for a cold glass of water and to sit somewhere for five minutes. Was I the asshole? They went right on their honeymoon and they've all been off of social media. But a lot of people have been posting on their wall asking about photos with zero responses. Woo! Now, to answer his question about whether or not he was the asshole for deleting all their wedding photos, the answer is yes. You were being the asshole. But to quote Chris Rock, I wouldn't do it, but I understand. But fuck it, I'm bothered by the larger conversation that developed as a result of this, where you have people out here really not providing food and water for vendors who work their wedding. And we're talking about people who, like in this guy's case, are sometimes working 10, 12 or 14 hours trying to make sure your wedding is the best and most memorable event possible. Now, I'm not saying you had to feed them filet mignon or in our case, a nicely done chicken breast and poached lobster. But most caterers and some hotel venues have a separate menu for vendors so that you're not paying the same per plate fee that you are for your guests. 
Or if you tell them what the deal is, some caterers would just hook you up with vendor food as a courtesy. Or you could just task somebody in your wedding to get the vendor some food. Order them a pizza. Get them some Lunchables. Do something. Your wedding is a lifelong memory. And if you treat your photographer, makeup artist, DJ, caterer or whoever like shit, you'll run the risk of their effort matching your energy. In this situation, the couple already was getting a crazy ass deal at $250. And then I ask you for some food and water and you're going to try to boss up on me and treat me like I'm the help. No, sir. Now, maybe I wouldn't have deleted those photos, but I would have put a whack ass filter on them and sent it to them or held those photos hostage until my man talked to me nice. Because what you're not going to do is talk to me crazy when I'm doing you a favor. Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify and Unbothered Inc. From Unbothered Inc., Christina Tapper is our head of content. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Rich Burner is our head of network production. And Evan Dick is our executive producer. From Spotify, our executive producer is Christina Tapper. Supervising producer is Jifa Yador. And project manager is Jessica Dow. Our theme, Word of the Week, and Fuck It On Bother tracks were written and performed by Brandon Lowe, produced by Lucas Spry and Alexander Hitchens. This or That Music, The Choice Is Yours, revisited by Black Sheep. Written by Andres Titus, William K. McLean, and Johnny Hammond from Universal Polygram International Publishing, Inc. on behalf of itself and Pete Boat Music. You can find me at Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. And please remember to hit follow on Jamel Hill is Unbothered on Spotify and share with your friends. <laughs> this sound like theme music, motivation to grind and get you through it. Church. Unbothered, never losing, check the score. Jamel, show improving. Don't make me tell you 50, 11 times from politics to laugh. Every week she shines. My word, how I live it.